0: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the Cusp show, where we talk about the business of sports and all the goings on around the business, this billion dollar global business that I, Joe Favorito, and my colleague Tom Richardson are involved with. Tom, welcome aboard again.
1: Hi, Joe. Good to be back for another show. I'm looking forward to this one.
0: And it really is, as people listen in, the first show that we will be doing in the spring of twenty seventeen. So as people kind of come about and look for what's coming up next, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit of entrepreneurship today. So our guest is a person you and I know pretty well, uh, and our audience is going to get to know is Nate Checkets, the CEO and founder of Roan Apparel. Nate, welcome aboard.
2: Thanks, Joe, and uh, it's great to be on with you guys.
0: So Nate, why don't we kind of just take it from the top. Um, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, how Roan, an apparel company with a very unique spin for especially for active males came about, uh, and kind of walk us through how the company grew, and then we can get into a lot of the business tactics uh, of how you've really become a, a pretty interesting disruptor brand in the men's apparel sector.
2: Sure, but let me caveat that with um, it's easy when telling a founder story to get a bit long-winded, um, so you know, feel free to jump in and ask any questions along <laughs> the way. <laughs> the um, the story of Roan really starts back uh, when, uh, you know, I come from a large family, six kids. Um, everyone in the family has kind of a significant other. There's 14 grandkids now. So you can imagine when um, during the holidays my mom goes out to kind of go out shopping and get everyone a gift, efficacy and efficiency is, is top of mind. And so – um I think it was Christmas of 2011 my mom went out with my sister-in-law who is uh is Canadian and my sister-in-law kind of dragged her into a Lululemon store and um you know my mom was aware of uh, of the fact that they made women's product and so she kind of got something for all of the girls in the family and then noticed that they had kind of a small guys section off to the side and decided to get all the guys in the family a pair of sweatpants. And so um, <laughs> Christmas morning rolls around and we open it up and we're, you know, it's, thanks so much, mom and dad, really kind of you to get us uh, a gift. And my <laughs> brother-in-law <laughs> said, wait a minute, I am not wearing these. This is a women's yoga brand. And I was, I was not terribly familiar with the brand at the time that, you know, they hadn't, Kind of hit that explosive growth yet. They were just on the cusp of doing that um, in the in the Northeast, and um, I said, "Well, wait a minute. These, you know, these seem like uh, nice quality pants. Like, why wouldn't you wear them?" And he's like, "Look at the logo, Nate. Look at the packaging. Um, like, clearly, these are not meant for men." And so I kind of brushed it off and laughed it off, and um, but sure enough, uh, a couple months later, I was in the NFL offices there, and I worked in the sponsorship group. And Budweiser, who was a big league sponsor, sent a box of Lululemon gear for the women in, in the office as uh, as part of uh, an event that was going on. And they started pulling it out, and I made the mistake of kind of <laughs> opening my mouth and saying, oh, I actually just got a pair of uh, Lululemon sweats for Christmas. And the guys in the office really just let me have it. Um, and started teasing me relentlessly. In fact, you know, one of my closest friends there, uh, Will, said to me, "Oh, well, you probably buy your underwear at Victoria's Secret, so that makes sense." And um, you know, it was it, it was kind of this interesting moment, and you know, it stood out. We um, didn't didn't really do much with it, and then kind of as I worked at the um, NFL. I got a lot of free sponsored product that came into the league offices is one of the perks about working in a sports league um, and one of the things that I noticed about this product that I received you know from these big box brands who are well known is that it just you know the it started to retain odor quickly after seven to ten washes um you know, noticeably would retain a level of odor, and it was kind of the confluence of these two things that just made me think, gosh, nobody is focusing on doing premium active, making active out of the highest quality of materials, kind of the best in, best in class at fighting odor, bacteria, and um, really with a focus on style and comfort exclusively for men. You see all of these companies focusing on the women's market and particularly the women's yoga market. And this really was driven by a conversation um, with my co-founder, who is my brother-in-law, Karis. And we just kind of went back and forth. Um, both of us commute in, commuted into New York City. So we had an hour-long train ride in to the city and an hour-long uh, train ride out. And kind of it just started texting back and forth. And pretty soon we had convinced ourselves There's an opportunity and there's a gap in the marketplace. And so, you know, the company now is a little over two and a half years old um, since we really launched it, but we've had tremendous growth. Um, We're in over 400 retail doors. Um, We've got um, a great online presence. And um, we're starting, you know, we're starting to think about what the next evolution and growth stage is of the brand. But what we're most proud about is we feel like we make really the best. Active product for um, for guys, so so it's been it's been a fun ride so far.
1: So Nate, I've got a question for you. So so you're kind of in this performance lifestyle category, right? I guess that's right. the the way everybody's referring to it. So that does include the major players like Under Armour and Nike, Adidas, etc. Correct? I mean, or or can you explain how yours might be your area might be a, a, a niche portion of that or you know, how it overlaps with the the bigger men's apparel uh, performance market?
2: You bet. So, you know, I think when you think about um, some of the mega trends that are happening in the world today, people are more focused on health and wellness and being active than they ever have before. The participation around um, kind of active events, things like Tough Mudder, um, and Spartan races and CrossFit games. The, you know, the, there's an increased focus on health and wellness and activity, and um, and certainly the the players that you talked about. You know, they um, they they have an angle on performance that they focus on. And then there's then there are other companies that focus on more lifestyle or casual pieces. And what I think really sets Rona apart is we we feel like there is an integration between those two where, you know, if you if you think about an astronaut, his uniform is going to be a, a spacesuit because he's going into space. Well, if you think about the fact that people's daily lives have evolved and changed over the last 20 years to be more active, it would make sense that their uniform would also evolve with it. And so instead of simply segmenting or bucketing Um, the approaches to clothing where it's like this is exclusively gym clothing and this is exclusively hangout clothing and this is exclusively work clothing. Our goal is to try and integrate those two uh, or three use case scenarios so that guys can be comfortable and active and healthy in all aspects of their life. And so it's, it's this idea where it's kind of style when you need it, performance when you want it and um and and I think that really does set us apart.
1: So do you have specific technology in in the mix?
2: Yeah, so one of the things that we're really excited about is we we just recently launched a technology called Gold Fusion, and gold fusion is um, was a was a technology and product that was about eighteen months in development for us, um, which uses gold and silver particles that get infused into the fibers of the garment. To fight odor, um, improve uh, drying time in fabrics, and improve color fastness, which is like color retention, so that the colors don't fade over time, as well as adding a layer of UPF protection. And this is head and shoulders above anything else that's out there. You know, pre- previous to launching Gold Fusion, we had been named by GQ as having the best odor-fighting product in the market. But Gold Fusion is two and a half times more effective as our previous product at um, fighting odor. So, uh, so we're really, really excited about it. And the idea for us is that, again, you can take some of these classic silhouettes, um, remove kind of the, the huge billboard-type branding that exists, make them much more style-conscious, but add best-in-class performance attributes so you truly create what's what we call performance lifestyle. I don't know if other people use that term, but for us, that's that's really how we think about it. Um, you hear some people, you know, call call it athleisure, but for us, this isn't clothing that you you know that you wear just to hang out. It's clothing that you can wear and be active and really perform in.
0: So, Nate, we have a lot of people who listen to the podcast who are obviously very into marketing. Um, You have, you know, and Tom has mentioned some of the bigger brands that spend millions and millions of dollars on marketing and brand awareness. Uh, As a disruptor, as a, uh, a comer in the market, how do you find a budget or how do you find ways to engage with consumers, number one, to bring them back, and then number two, to make them aware of what it is they want to buy when they go in? Is it you know, more towards the digital social side? Is there a traditional spend? How do you figure out where to best spend your dollars and how do you spend them in the marketing space?
2: Well, I think the, the easiest answer is we just call Joe Favorito and, uh, and he, he helps make us look good. But um, beyond that, if assuming that that's table stakes, uh, I think that, you know, there are a lot of things that brands can do today uh, that 15, 20 years ago um, simply were not possible. And in, in many ways, the, um, the, the playing field has been flattened or leveled um, for young up-and-coming brands to be able to compete head-on with those bigger budgets and bigger brands, particularly when it relates to social and digital. So for us, um, we have what we think is a best-in-class digital team. We were born on the web, so um, e-commerce is, is our first point of focus and sale rather than our last. And, um, and, and so the team that we've built is all very digitally conscious and sensitive. Um, so, for example, when uh, buzzwords or certain industry terms become effective, we place natively in those search terms faster than most of these bigger companies do because they use outsourced services for their search engine optimization. Um, but that's native to our team. It's part of how we are built. Um, you know, we think about social media the way that I think most people think about social media um, because it's natural to who we are and it's, you know, part of our ecosystem. So, um, you know, it is a challenge, though. It, 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 we're never going to be able to just go spend $200,000 on an ad campaign creation um that, you know, any of these bigger companies write off as a, as a rounding error. So, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but part of it is you have to be unique. You have to, in order to disrupt a market, you have to, you really have to have something that's unique and, and better. And that's, I think part of what's been a driving force for our success. So Nate, a quick
1: follow up on the social uh, two, two part question. One is how big is your, Social marketing team, and can you talk about which platforms currently are performing the best and and why you think that is?
2: Sure. So, you know, the the social marketing team is is a bit of an integration between customer service and social um, because, Mm -hmm. in reality, we want to speak to the customer in the same way no matter how they reach out to us, whether it's directly through um, customer service emails or whether it's through a social. Um, platform so it's all about kind of customer engagement and customer response and and creating a level of engagement that's truly authentic um, and and so you know the customer service team is five people the um, the social media kind of marketing team is only three people um, but they work kind of hand in hand to um, to make sure that we're responding and kind of Really on top of uh, of customer responses, and it's gotten a lot better um, as we've grown. Um, and and sorry that the the second part to the question um, in terms of which channels have been performing really well for us, you know, we yeah. we found Facebook and Instagram to be kind of bread and butter, um, you know, good good spends, good returns. Um, but it's you know it's part art and part science. We do a lot of A/B testing in all of our advertisements. Things that um, might not surprise you and things that I think would surprise you, um, whether or not uh, a model um, wearing product is more effective than a flat lay version of the product, whether um, the on model shots are more effective in a studio or out in the wild, um, the kind of the size and look and style um, and how that's driving, ultimately, conversion. So at any point in time, we are constantly running A-B tests to determine what's going to perform the absolute best and then adjusting, um, uh, adjusting kind of across all channels um, based on the performance of, of those A-B tests. And have you integrated video as well? We've started to integrate a lot more video. It's certainly an investment um, and something that is a big focus for us in 2017 because it's, it it clearly does drive results.
1: Yeah, and then just one, one last uh, point on, on the social engagement. Are you actually um, kind of monitoring things on a hour-to-hour, you know, day-to-day basis, And as you said, you know, trying to figure out that balance between kind of real time customer service and then brand building. And in certain cases, some direct marketing, I assume, because you're probably doing some offers. I mean, it just seems like it's a really hard balance for any brand, (laughs) particularly one that's just building an audience. So can you talk about that for a second?
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. It is a hard, hard balance. And, um, that's why I say it really is part art, part science. For example, one of the things that we implemented is kind of standard e-commerce 101 is is a level of retargeting service. And you know, for any listeners that aren't aware of how that works, um, if you go to a website and you're looking at a specific product, you may notice that um, you'll see an ad when you're kind of out surfing uh, the web for that exact product to try and bring you back um, to the site to, to kind of complete the, uh, the purchase cycle. Um, and, you know, this is very standard, and a lot of brands play with this. Some brands will spend a lot of money on it. But the challenge is, is that a lot of these retargeting services are dynamic, meaning they self-populate. And um, you can kind of give some level of parameters, but you can't, you don't have final creative control on how it will look. and um, And so early on, our retargeting was – a little too aggressive, meaning no matter where you were, if you had come to the wrong site, we were going to find you on the internet, and it's it's a balance. And um, I remember we had an older gentleman call, um, who clearly was not very technical, um, but said, "Hey, my uh, my daughter sent me your website. Said I should check out." your product and now I can't get your ads off of my computer and I took I took my laptop <laughs> down to the Apple store and they told me they can't help me get the ads off the computer what can I do <laughs> and it was just you know I was like look guys I think we've I think we're we are we're too aggressive here we don't want to look like we're trying so hard to reach the customer I get that you can still prove that it's there's a return on this but there's a balance on kind of the long tail um, side of building a brand and the short term conversion and so th- there's always that balance you know the, the counter side of that is like it's great to get a call from my aunt and say oh my gosh I just saw Roan on CNN you, things must be going so well <laughs> and I don't have the heart to tell her that yeah that's just a retargeting ad that you know placement and so of course I just say yeah things are going amazing and um, yeah we're you know we're also on ESPN and and these other big sites so uh, that yeah, is, that's that's that funny. So, funny. actually, I
1: guess Joe, Joe, as you and I got ready for this podcast episode, we're gonna and having done some research on Rome we're gonna find ourselves overwhelmed with Rome messaging the next few days. I, I guess. have no comment, uh, by uh, the way,
0: because I'm looking <laughs> I'm looking at a homepage right now, and there's Rome in the upper right hand side. So there um, you go. That's funny. So so <laughs> um,
1: so Nate, what, what, I, I thought of one final question on the social question because this is really interesting stuff uh, for many of us. So. Are you getting most of that performance through earned the, the the proverbial earned media value in these social channels, or are, are you actually spending some money and, and taking advantage of the paid media option too?
2: Yeah, it's really a combination I mean the the goal is to you know on a pure marketing basis is, is to balance your customer acquisition costs right your, your CAC. Mm-hmm. And um, when you can identify a few key numbers, what's the average order value of uh, of a customer, um, and what's the lifetime value of that customer, it really can help determine what your acquisition cost should be. And then, you know, then it is a balance. There's there's certainly um, a drive to keep that number at a healthy level, and a lot of brands that are e-commerce only. Um, tend to really overspend and build organizations that are used to overspending here so that by the time you know they, they eventually do have to focus on profitability, they're really stuck and they're unable to get out of that life cycle of kind of overspending on uh, acquiring new customers. And so one of the great things for us about being an omni-channel retailer, which means that we don't just sell online, we also sell in a retail presence and we have wholesale accounts, is that um, – we really try and balance that and and there is a focus on um not just spending senselessly and, and overwhelming um customers and so uh, the it, it is it's you know, again there's just kind of constant iteration on this um, and the great thing about these digital channels is that you can do that on the other side of it we do work with um, we're always trying to find influential people and uh on these social channels and working with them. And the great thing about having good product is it makes it a lot easier. There's a lot of proactive requests on a daily basis. We get emails from people saying we'd love to rep your product and show your product. And in many cases, we don't ever pay, uh, almost we never pay social influencers, but we don't even have to give them product. People are just happy to kind of represent it because they love it.
0: So, so talking about a little bit about the influencer side and, kind of the the athlete endorsement side you um you have some high profile investors uh and another thing that that people who listen to this podcast are always interested in is how do entrepreneurs find money uh, for good ideas when they have a good idea so how did you go about taking the friends and family piece out of it how did you go about finding more money and then tell the people who some of your investors are what they do uh, and how some of them have even crossed over into being pretty pretty big household names.
2: Yeah, so um, you know I think raising capital is is always tricky and challenging, um, uh, and 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 we've been fortunate that we've had um, just great people interested and involved. But we have some high profile investors like David Stern, Shane Battier. Um, Ryan Russillo, uh, the, the radio show host, Steve Bornstein, the the former CEO of ESPN and um, general manager of NFL Media. So we've, we've, we've got um, – and, and there are influential people that are investors that we can't talk about, um, but those are the ones that we can talk about. And I think the way that we were able to attract them to invest um, and the reason why we were successful there is – one, they were the last conversations that we had, not the first conversations. Most entrepreneurs, when they go to raise capital, um, they will go out to these high-profile people, and um, the, it, you know, it's a first conversation about money. You should be, you should be an investor in my company, and here's why I think it's going to be successful. Investors, particularly angel investors, non-professional investors. Um, they they're looking for a level of momentum, uh, and kind of credibility indicators um, that professional investors are able to kind of dive into the weeds and and find those themselves. But but angel investors are busy and and busy people and they have money for a reason because they're you know they're busy and they've got a lot of things going on. So it's a lot like being at a stoplight where you're not really waiting for the light to turn green. You're waiting for the car next to you to move. And so where I think most entrepreneurs make a mistake is they go out and they're you know, they're, they're raising money when they absolutely have to. It's too late um, rather than starting the process early and building relationships with people. And so we were fortunate in the fact that we started to just almost pre-market that we were going to go out and raise before we ever had to raise money. We had a lot of conversations with people, and we said, this is what we're doing. This is why we think it's going to be successful. And if anybody said, oh, well, are you raising money, or can I put money in? It was great to be able to tell those people, actually, we're not raising right now, and we don't need your, we don't need your capital right now. So that when, when the time came, they were kind of more excited and more interested. And we could say something along the lines of, I think this is a great question to ask when you're raising money, is if we were to be raising um, you know, what types of check sizes do you typically write? And then, you could, then we tracked everything in a Google spreadsheet, and we just had a list of everybody who had expressed any interest and what their interest amount was. And so, you know, our Series A was a $5 million round, but initially we had targeted $3 million. And um, before we ever went out into the market to really fully raise, we knew that we had $3 million plus of interest. And for investors, it's a great security blanket to know that there are other people around the table who have done their homework, who have asked good questions, and, um, and so they feel a lot more comfortable being in. And then there's also a level of scarcity, because you can only accept so many investors, and, um, and scarcity is certainly a great way of driving to a close. So um, we, we were really fortunate that way, and again, after we had decided to take up to five million, and we had four committed, it was a lot easier to go to these high-profile investors and say, "We have commitments for the the rest of the round." But the reality is, is we don't just want money; we want help, and we want strategic add uh, addition here. So, we want you because we think that your name is valuable, and that you, we think you can be additive. And um, I'll never forget David Stern's line. He said, "I'm not sure how I can be additive to a fashion brand, but." Um, if you think I can be, I'm I'm, I'm happy to be. That's so great. it was, you know, it, we were we were very fortunate, and um, certainly to call a, a spade a spade. I'm I'm very blessed to, to, you know, have a pedigree and come from a family um, that's been involved in sports, and having my dad work in sports. So you know, I was very lucky to be able to get into the door and have some of those conversations, and uh, mm-hmm. and that makes a big difference too.
0: And, Nate, some of that money, you know, I would imagine comes from unusual places. And I know I was kind of there at the beginning when Shane Battier kind of fell from a totally different area. Do you want to talk about just a little bit about how, um, you know, it almost went from a charity involvement to suddenly you get a call saying, hey, I love your stuff, which actually led, I guess, at the end of the story to Shane learning how to swim, which was a pretty funny story how end it ended up. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, that was so awesome. why don't you talk about that and some of those unusual ways that people wouldn't think that that, you know, you got involved with people
2: well again we we were lucky um, you know to uh, Joe, I think you put us in touch with a group that helps raise um, charity money for athlete foundations. and um, we were we had talked to this group about the South Beach Triathlon, and uh, they said, here there's you know the number of high profile actors and celebrities and athletes that are raising money for uh, their charities, um, you know, look at the list and tell us if there there are any of these foundations or athletes that you'd be interested in being involved with. And Shane was somebody who stuck out on the list for me because when we think about who we want to get behind and kind of our athlete endorsement, we look for great people first and great athletes second. Um, And, you know, I think, I think that's a bit backwards relative to the rest of the industry, but it's, it's something that we're very passionate about is finding great people. And Shane, you know, even if you don't like Duke, and there are a lot of people that do not like Duke, and you don't like the Miami Heat, and I'm somebody who does not like the Miami Heat, you, there are very few people that don't like Shane Battier because he is just a tremendous guy. He's a great, great guy. And so when we had a chance to get involved with him, there was a request to make a donation. And in exchange, Shane was going to come to our booth at the South Beach Triathlon and sign a, sign a few autographs and kind of wear the product during the try. Um, and he, he came to the booth. He could not have been more gracious. We gave him product to put on, and he signed autographs and took pictures. And he's beloved in South Beach. So um, I found out during that process that he uh, – he was going to be doing the biking portion of the triathlon, um, because, but he, he wanted one day to be able to compete in a full triathlon. He just didn't know how to swim. He grew up in Michigan, you know, six foot nine could probably stand in any, the deep end of any pool, um, and just never really never learned how to swim. And so, um, so that was kind of an interesting conversation. And, um, And then later I I said to him, there was kind of this bold ask moment where I said, you know, Shane, I really enjoyed getting to know you. I'd love to stay in touch as we grow um, and grow the brand. And if you ever take swim lessons, we're coming out with a board short. I'd love to kind of film that process if you're not overly embarrassed by it because I think it's a great story. Here's a professional athlete who's willing to kind of submit himself as a child and learn a skill that many people learn in their youth. And he said, "Absolutely." Gave me his cell phone number, gave me his email, and um, and then we had interacted via email. He said he was going to be up in New York, so we ended up going and getting breakfast. And he kind of proactively approached me about investing um, in the company. And that was, yeah, that was pretty incredible how that all came came about. Wow, that's crazy.
1: Um, let me uh, switch gears for a second back to the, the bigger some of the bigger industry trends. So, and Nate, you didn't really tell the audience about, you know, kind of from, from whence you came professionally, but you know, you did mention in passing that you worked for the NFL and I've been kind of smiling here, listening to you talking about color fastness and, and integration into fabrics and things like that, knowing that you work for <laughs> the marketing business development guy at the NFL. So it might be interesting to reference that, but I'm sure you had to really, kind of re-educate yourself and learn this essentially new industry that you were just not in yeah. before. And you've also done it at a time where there's a, an amazing amount of tumult in, in this part of the, of the business world. And, you know, we've watched the decline and fall of American Peril, the rise and fall of Nasty Gal. I mean, the stories go on and on in businesses that relate to loan. So to talk about that. Talk about that transition from being more of a general business, Uh, executive and investor type person to running an apparel company at a very difficult time and and the observations you've made and the the lessons you've learned watching what's going on in the industry.
2: It's funny to hear you say that, Tom, mainly because, you know, if you were to ask all of my siblings um, and probably my parents, who in the family is the least likely to start kind of a fashion apparel brand, I think I would have been last on everybody's list. <laughs> That's um, great. I, I don't think I'm, I'm pretty confident I would have been last on everybody's list. Uh, mainly because, you know, that, that was not necessarily something that, that drove me or was a huge focus growing up. And when I was working at the NFL, I had, I had done primarily entrepreneurial type activities before that, but always based in software and tech. And um, I, I, the NFL is an incredible place to work with really smart, bright people, but it's still a corporate environment. And for me, that just wasn't an environment that I, I really thrived on. I liked the idea of kind of the roller coaster up and down. And so I remember I was sitting on the train, and I had this moment where I, it kind of hit me what I wanted to do with my life. And I, I remember I opened up my moleskin notebook, and I wrote down, um, I want to lead an organization that is positively impacting the world and um, and then kind of underneath that, I wrote that doesn't mean I need to be curing cancer, but uh, i want to I want to build something that can have a positive impact on the world and that was that uh, sounds so simple, but for me, it was a revelation where I realized i 'm not an industry person you know, I, I grew up in a, a family of people who all wanted to work in sports my Older brother is uh, a sports talk radio host, does pre and post games for for the Jazz. My younger brother, my two younger brothers, interned at ESPN, had planned to go at ESPN. And I really never had that same drive of kind of like, I have to work in sports. Um, But I also didn't have that same drive about any other vertical. I have to work in clothing or I have to work in tech. And so that was kind of a challenge for me. What I realized is I love to build things and I love to create things that didn't exist before. And it doesn't – the The industry is, is kind of the thing that I'm flexible around. And um, clothing and apparel is a very challenging business, and there are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't go into it. Um, but there's a lot that I really love about it, and it has been an education, something that I've grown to love over the past, you know, kind of three years.
1: Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> when you look at some of the moves that other apparel companies have made extending – their business beyond the actual creation of the apparel or manufacturing apparel to actually getting to retail. Are you closely monitoring the industry right now to see which moves are working, which ones you can adopt, which, which ones you can look at for future growth? I guess you have to be right. I mean, you gotta be a real student yeah, of
2: this business. You know, it's interesting. I, um, I, I was able, I was fortunate to, to spend some time with Jack Dorsey a couple of years ago and he and I, talked a lot about the role of competition and kind of how you think about competition. And he said, we don't look at our competitors. Um, uh, we really don't spend a lot of time on them. And I thought that was a fascinating statement. Um, and, and I don't know whether or not it's actually true. I, I imagine that for him specifically it is. But there is some truth to that. You know, Henry Ford once said, if I gave my customers what they had been asking for, I would have given them a faster horse and buggy. Right, and so, in order to stay ahead of the curve, you really do, in some ways, need to be, need to separate yourself from just what everybody else is doing, and what the masses are doing, and be focused on your goals and objectives. But clearly, you know, we we don't we're, we don't try and be the ostrich with the head in, head in the sand, so to speak. We you know, we do try and keep pulse on what's happening in the industry, and if there are smart or better ways of doing something than we've thought of, and we try and quickly adapt uh, accordingly. All right well that said,
1: I've got to ask you this where Where do you see Roan in five years?
2: You know, our goal is to build the next billion dollar active brand um, and that's something that we um, that we talk a lot about internally and um, you know the it it is it's a goal that really isn't so much financially driven but relevancy driven you know we want to have a big impact on the world and um, in order to make that dent, you have to have customers and you have to have pull and, um, you know, you really, have to, you really have to have influence. And so for us, that's what we talk about and we, we think that that's achievable. Um, and part of the reason that that drives us is our mission is to inspire men to lead better active lives. So, um, so yeah, those are kind of the two things that we're really, really focused on.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're gonna wrap in a couple minutes, Nate. But uh, we have a good—I think I have a good segue question for, for for what we wanted to get to in the final questions. You made reference to the fact that you realized, and, and you and I had talked about this previously, while you were working at the NFL, as as good an experience as it was, you just really that corporate environment wasn't for you, and then you went to the other extreme of the business or a working continuum, which is literally a startup from scratch. Do you feel as though, as people think about their careers and career development, that everybody ultimately has to wrestle with that kind of fact, like where they, where they belong in that continuum?
2: Well, I think, it, I think it can be a big source of pain or joy in your life. When you think about how many hours – particularly as Americans, we spend at work. Yeah, I do think everyone needs to grapple with that question because if you choose to just go wherever the flow takes you, um, you might find that you don't like where you end up. And I'm a big believer in intention and kind of proactively stating your intention. And, um, and I, I think if you choose not to, you know, not to kind of have those difficult conversations with yourself, it's very likely that you'll find you're, you know, you're not doing something that you really love. People can overdo it. You can certainly overanalyze, but it's important to ask yourself these questions. You know, where do I find that I'm most productive? You know, um, in what environments do I think I can most contribute? Is that companies? is that, there's only so many stakes you can put on the ground. Is that geography-based? Do do I need to be in and around New York City? Is it um, compensation-based? Do I need to have a certain level of compensation? Is it industry-based? Is it company size-based? You really can only pick one or two of those stakes, and then you put those in the ground and be flexible around everything else.
0: Mm -hmm. Nate, there's two things we like to ask uh, our guests. One is information that you'd like to give the young people or the people coming into the industry, one or two little tidbits uh, of lessons learned uh, that you'd like to share. And then the second thing is, uh, well, actually it's two parts. Where can people find you, find Roan uh, in the in the digital space? And then where do you get a lot of your information from? What are the go-to sources for you?
2: Sure. Okay, well, I'll try and unpack those maybe um, in reverse order. So Roan can be found at Roan.com. It's R H O N E. Dot com. Um, and you can find me uh, on, on social media at Nate Checkets um, on Twitter, Instagram, um, and LinkedIn, and certainly try and be super responsive across all of those platforms. Um, in terms of where I get my information or what I listen to, um, you know, I, I really, I, maybe I'm a bit unique this way. I think that there's, so much content out there, and it 's almost a deluge that I try and be hyper selective um, about content and try and find something that's kind of close to me from a community standpoint, which is why I think what you guys are doing is so great because it's you know there's really relevance to the people at columbia so you know I think for for each individual it's it's fine find a content platform that's not so big and generic but that has real applicability to you personally and um, and then lastly, kind of advice that I would give to young people, really to anyone, is, um, is two things. One, don't be afraid to embrace your own ignorance. Ignorance is usually something that we kind of really frown on, and obviously education is highly, highly important. So I don't mean to diminish that at all, but, um, you know, Steve Jobs was famous for saying, only the people who truly believe they can change the world are the ones who actually do. And in most level of entrepreneurship, people don't take action because they're afraid that they will fail. And usually that fear is based on an understanding of how complicated any, in, any given industry is. And here's the secret. Every single industry is complicated. I have yet to find somebody who says, no, this business is actually really, really easy, and there's nothing complicated mm-hmm. about it. Every right. industry is complicated. And so if you you know for young people if 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 you don't know how difficult something is then you're much more willing to go and take it on and try it and as you unpack it you're going to learn the complications and all of the mistakes that people make but the fact that you're willing to try is what gives you the advantage most people because they know better are too afraid to even get started so that's the first thing is is, is don't fear your own ignorance and the second thing is work your tail off and don't, you know, just be really proactive. There's an article that I refer a lot of people to called A Message to Garcia, which is really old um, and came from the First World War, I believe, about um, a captain that was sent to deliver a message to General Garcia. And when he was asked to go and send it, he didn't ask, well, where is General Garcia? How far away is he? How long will it take? How much food should I bring? You know, where can I look this up in a dictionary? He just, he just went and he did. And um, there is such a need and a demand for people who will just take, take a request and go and do it without asking a million questions um, and just being super proactive and, and self, um, you know, kind of taking care of their, their own uh, questions and challenges. So um, that idea of self-reliance is a big one for me. Yeah, that's that's actually
1: a really good point, Nate, about the idea of resourcefulness, especially in today's business marketplace. But let me let me just ask you a follow-up question on the career advice. So, do you feel as though some of the clearly you had an entrepreneurial spirit uh, in in you for probably mo- I assume most of your life, and it, you you, you found some ways to actually um, develop it and then ultimately uh, make it and to turn it into a real business. Do, do you think some of these character traits vary by uh, kind of sector and, and business and environment you're In other words, are certain people really just cut out to be entrepreneurs just ba- based on, as opposed to hard skills, character traits versus people that are working in large corporations?
2: Yeah. you know,
1: Cause it's one thing I, I mean, actually one I didn't explain that very well, but, one other way to say it vis-a-vis your point is that to be my observation and having done some entrepreneurial work myself is that you have to, whether you like or not, be extremely resourceful like getting stuff done when you're kind of on your own, when you're starting something, when you're part of a large organization, a lot of things get done for you or with an amazing amount of support around you and in all different kinds of ways. So, so that question of resourcefulness, is, it can be applied in different areas, but do you feel so some of it is actually more character-driven?
2: Yeah, it, it is an interesting question. I think it's one that people ask a lot. I don't know the answer to it. The, the, the ultimate question is, are, are entrepreneurs born or are they made? And, you know, mm-hmm. I tend to believe that people can make themselves into what they want to be. You know, I, I like the idea of, you know, certainly there are natural gifts and tendencies um, that each of us are born with, um, and for me, i've always had a natural curiosity and a hunger to understand the way things work. Um, but I think that successful entrepreneurs can come from from anywhere. There needs to be an absolute commitment and a level of courage and willingness to take risk. Um, but you know for some people, that might be the case at certain points in their lives, you know when it's not necessarily the case in others, you know for some people that might hit. When they're younger and some people it might hit when they're older, and some people it um, it might never go away my My wife likes to tell people the story that on our honeymoon we were on a cruise ship, and um, at dinner uh, I started asking her uh, about how how I thought the uh the cruise line was actually making money based on the fixed capacity and how many how many staff there were and she just likes to tell people that story because it really is the way my mind works. I'm just always asking questions and have a mm-hmm. constant fascination, curiosity. But, um, but you know, I don't know that you have to have that to be a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. That's an interesting
0: question for,
1: for all of us to think about Joe. Uh, do you have any last questions for Nate or should we wrap this up?
0: No, I think that covered, uh, a lot of points that we wanted to make Tom. So it was actually great having Nate on and, talking about not just Roan, but how he found investors and how he's built a marketing budget and a marketing staff around um, the digital social space, which is one we're all very passionate about.
1: Yeah, we covered a lot in 35 to 40 minutes, so thank you very much for all those insights, Nate. It was really terrific.
2: Thanks, guys. It's an honor to be be on with you and and really exciting what you guys do.
1: I appreciate that. And um, so on behalf of uh, Joe... I want to thank everybody for listening to this latest episode of The Cusp Show. We'll, we'll look forward to the next one. Uh, and you can check us out, as just to remind everybody, on iTunes and Stitcher and Blog Talk Radio. So um, spread the word. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my host is Joe Fabrito. And our production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program columbia university sports management program by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management thank you very much we'll see you next time